Agnostics, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by not one, but two conservative counterparts, as always, or as often, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson, as well as, hey, Jay, hey, Jay is morning, eager Mike. to get yes. going, yes, as yes. well as attorney and former deputy assistant to President Trump, May Mailman. Hey, Mike and Jay. Hey. This is the first time I realized that the three of us have done the show together. And so this will be sort of a a test of my ability to go up against not one, but two conservatives. And let's just hope I emerge, I don't know, probably unscathed. There'd be too much to hope for, but at least not too terribly bloodied. We'll, we'll, we'll see. But but we have, we have a lot to get into. But before we do get into everything, I just want to thank a few new supporters. There's uh, A-Toms, who moved from the trial program we have to being a full supporter, as well as Randall, who's our newest yearly supporter on Patreon, where you can save 10% off. That sounds really good. <laughs> anyway, and then there's Nathan. Who's Black been, Friday special. There you go. You know, Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, name your day, really. But also Nathan. Uh, Nathan's been a supporter for years, and Nathan recently switched from monthly to yearly support and upgraded his support level. And he shared something with me, wrote, I was debating on a stupid purchase today. Boy, I feel that. I'm willing to spend $100 on some only slightly useful or interesting thing. Then the weekly bonus show dropped and I thought, these guys have been way more helpful to me than some weird gadget. They easily deserve my dollars much more. Says I checked out the tier list. Yeah, he said there was something around 100 bucks a year. He said it was meant to be uh, but he, he said, seriously, I upgraded my support because I respect and appreciate your work so much. You model sensible and respectful debate. I think everyone needs to hear that as well as up-to-date information you provide. So that was really nice, Nathan. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. And I also want to mention that for this holiday season, which I guess now has officially started with Thanksgiving just behind us. Until the end of the year, if you become a new supporter or you increase your level of support, we're going to make a donation matching uh, the amount of your support for a month to Feeding America, which is the largest hunger relief organization in the United States. Uh, It's a fairly well-run charity and Charity Navigator gives its four stars. So if you've been considering supporting the show or maybe increasing your level of support, Now is a great time to do it because you'll not only be helping us, but you will be helping Americans in need. So there you go. Um, And like I said, we have a lot to get into today. We're going to be talking about the uh, Israel-Hamas hostage deal, uh, Donald Trump being ruled an insurrectionist, uh, Eighth Circuit's ruling on the Voting Rights Act, and some things that we are thankful for, uh, reflections on just after Thanksgiving. And so let's just get right into it. Jay, do you want to lead us off? I, I do. Uh, so our first story, uh, uh, obviously, is the update in the uh, Israeli-Hamas uh, war. Yesterday, Hamas released uh, 13 Israeli hostages as well as uh, 10 Thai nationals that have been holding hostage as part of a uh, larger deal that had been brokered largely by, by Gutter, uh, which would exchange uh, 50 hostages 
uh, for a total of 150 um, Palestinian prisoners, uh, as well as a, a temporary ceasefire, uh, allowing that those exchanges to take place. Um, now, uh, even after this uh, exchange, uh, 213 hostages remain uh, in Gaza, uh, some of them Americans. Uh, and uh, this is sort of a day-by-day situation. Um, there are expected to be another uh, tranche of, of hostages released uh, later today. This is as we as we record this Saturday morning. Um, so, I mean, I, I that's that's the the report and the the discussion. I guess will follow as to. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent. I'll start off with my opinion of of any hostages returned uh, is a good thing um, in and of itself. Um, and uh, you know, I, I I think there's a cost, but uh, I I trust uh, the government of Israel to weigh that cost um, uh, with its its objectives, and uh, I think it can accomplish. Um, uh, both objective, objectives of freeing, freeing hostages and destroying Hamas. Um, uh, but I'll, I'll pitch it to you, uh, Mike, to to respond. You 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 might have a different opinion. I, I, I may may might take a harder line than I do. But uh, um, uh, Mike, your thoughts? Well, like I think everyone, I, I feel that return anything that helps to return hostages is a good thing. But, you know, you hinted at this. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far to say anything. anything right, that sure. Helps, yeah. But, well, but, yeah. returning of hostages is a good thing. I said thing. this is. Yeah. Yeah. But but I guess my concern is uh, to what extent does this incentivize more hostage taking? Right. Because it's 50 for 150, at least the, the total deal. And uh, I think that's, you know, I, I think as a general rule, Israel has taken sort of a harder line on not negotiating with terrorists than maybe some others have. And I guess I wonder if that, I understand there's been a lot of understandable domestic political pressure on the Netanyahu government to get those hostages released. But that that's my main, uh, I guess, concern. And, and I guess maybe you, you hinted, May, maybe you'll be taking a harder line. And so, oh, what do you think? Is that a, is that a good deal? So there's already been reporting that the 150, well, I guess those are the promised uh, Palestinian prisoners released, but that the prisoners who have been released are already flying Hamas flags, not like Palestinian support. Um, But, you know, these are people who are among them suspected terrorists. And so, you know, it's not costless for Israel and you know, it's it's good that hostages were released. Ten to twelve of them were like Thai migrant farm workers, which I guess Hamas didn't see value there, right? But who did Hamas hang on to? They hung on to the American citizens. They hung on to Israeli babies, right? So there's still just uh, Hamas knows that they are holding a lot of power and they intend to wield that power. And so you can just tell by this initial release, they wanted to release a few children in order to maybe gain some uh, pro-public sentiment. Look, we didn't kill these young, you know, young kids. But at the same time, you know, the U.S. just released $6 billion to Iran for five prisoners um 
And may yeah. I, I'd say I find that much, yeah, even more troubling. But yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so I just think that, so Hamas sees that and knows there's a lot of power in, in who they're holding. So I don't, you know, this is a good first step, but I don't actually see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, jump in on that because I think we need to be clear that neither side is interested in any sort of uh, a deal. I mean, Israel has been very clear that its goal is to destroy Hamas. And last week, a Hamas spokesperson said, I hope that the state of war with Israel will become permanent on all the borders and that the Arab world will stand with us. I mean, that's that's pretty clear. And I think sometimes when we think about these things, we think, well, uh, in terms of how other folks might view it, say, well, we of course, people want there to be peace, but no, I, I don't think that's the case at all. And that to me is the most, I guess, disturbing thing is, is what is the end game here? I mean, already, you know, something like 15,000 Gazans have been killed. And uh, just because the population is so young, the median age is like 18, a, a big percentage of those are kids who, of course, have had no real say in this. They've just been drawn into this by the uh, horrific terrorist corrupt leadership of Hamas. And you have, you know, like over one and a half million people displaced, like half of the housing stock destroyed. This is something that I don't see it getting necessary. I hope more hostages are released. But in general, in terms of the humanitarian crisis that we're seeing here, I don't see this getting better anytime soon. I'm wondering, Jay, what do you think? So I, I think, you know, the, in the way I, I would distinguish this, because you may both make good points that um, paying for hostages or, or giving prisoners in exchange for hostages uh, only encourages hostage taking. I think the situation is a little different uh, because of what you just said. This is an ongoing war. Uh, it's not going to end. Uh, this is not um, uh, a, a one off. And my anticipation would be. Uh, of those 150 prisoner Palestinian prisoners that are released, um, uh, they will return to to uh, uh, we'll call it the battlefield, uh, and Israel will will hunt them down and and be successful uh, in in eliminating them eventually. So that's that's you know the way I I look at it is you get some of these women and children back safely. Um, and uh, you can take care of these these terrorists later, which is always the plan. Sort of get the civilians off the um, uh, out of harm's way, and then go back after the the bad guys. Um, the other thing that that strikes me, and and this is something an Israeli um, uh, spokesperson said the other day that that really hit home when talking about the the uh, disproportionality of of the deal, right? Of um, uh, fifty. Uh, civilian, you know, mostly women, children, completely innocent of all of this, uh, being exchanged for 150 uh, people who are, are bad actors, uh, arrested, convicted. Um, well, well, hold on mostly. on that. Just one thing. A lot of those bad actors are, are kids, and uh, oftentimes they have been not necessarily convicted, but charged with or things like throwing rocks or stuff. I mean, I, I'm just saying that it's not we're not talking about 150 sort of hardened lifetime terrorist sort of folks. There are some seriously bad actors there. Well, as there well, are some, but, but certainly there are some among those. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but but the the argument being, I, I think this speaks to um, civilizational values um, in that uh, uh, 
the Israelis are willing to say, yes, our uh, one innocent um, civilian person is is worth uh, three of uh, of these folks. So um, I, I think that's you know, you can say it's a bad deal because it's three for one. But uh, you can also say, listen, you are getting home civilians and uh, you will have another chance at um, uh, the bad actors. I guess I, I, yeah. I, I mean, that's I mean, that sounds sort of, you know, Machiavellian and so forth. But um, I, I think that's I think that's, you know, that's how Israel has to operate. I question the premise uh, that there are these bad actors and then there are these civilians. Uh, this this idea that you can I, I think you mentioned, well, you can just go after the terrorists later. Uh, to me, it seems like so much of the population has been radicalized. By uh, by just the conditions they were they've been brought up they've lived in for their entire lives that this idea that you can easily separate them out that's why I I I don't understand well, I don't know that you can but that, right, I'm, that's I'm my point yeah in, in an overall war you'll you'll get them eventually either either these folks will say gosh I was uh, foolish for throwing rocks I really should adopt a more peaceful attitude or they'll sign on with Hamas and uh, uh, which I think is more likely. I feel like um, did we learn nothing I mean, from you know the Vietnam experience, for instance? That I that, that's you can't. This is not the sort of they're clearly not winning any hearts and minds, right? And so uh, again, it seems to me Israel is is I don't know if it's committing to a forever war here, but that this to me makes me think about. Uh, you guys might have uh, maybe or not, but Bernie Sanders had a guest essay in the New York Times this week on this, and he pointed out that you know there have been five wars between Israel and Hamas in the last 15 years. And uh, basically, clearly, whatever we're trying to has been tried is not working. And uh, what, what Bernie called for is uh, Israel to end the, what he called indiscriminate bombing, I believe, a longer pause for humanitarian aid, as well as, and I think this is the, the key thing, commitments from Israel to guarantee right of return to the displaced Gazans in this, that they wouldn't be permanently occupying Gaza, that they'd freeze the West Bank settlements, which have been at, a, a, I think, an all-time high in this last year, I believe. And it also agreed to some sort of talks. And I, you guys will probably differ with me a lot on any of those details. But I think the key point is that if if you don't offer the people in Gaza something, if you just say, well, either just go back to the the status quo, or we will just bomb and destroy you. That 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 gives them no forward path, nothing positive. And so that they don't I mean, want a forward path, though. That's yeah. the problem, right? So a two state solution has been offered multiple times. They don't want that. There is a reason that the slogan is "from the river to the sea." So th nothing short of that is going to be a satisfactory solution. They can accept it, but you know what's going to happen? October 7th is going to happen again because the goal, the goal of leadership, the goal of the Hamas leadership is that, you know, it, there can be no Jewish population anywhere, but especially next to them. So all of this, well, what if we offer them this? What if we offered them that? They want the elimination of the Jews. So if you can't offer them that, then you're going to have a continual state of war. And so that that is what makes this a little bit, I think, intractable. And everyone says, I cannot believe someone would uh, recommend, you know, an occupied 
you know, territory. And it's it's so terrible. Okay, well, it happened just before 2005. So it's not like this ahistorical um, reality to live in. But what's the other solution? I mean, just allow terrorists to subjugate their own people, make their own people starving, hungry, take away all the humanitarian aid, build rockets instead of uh, water, you know, water tunnels. So I don't know. I, I, yep. you, you can offer the Palestinians a lot, but it, you have to offer them from the river to the sea in order to to have a platform that is uh, electable, I guess. I, yeah. I, and I, I would I would add on that, Mike, the, the forever war piece. Israel has been in a forever war, uh, essentially, since since its uh, inception in 1948. Um, and I, as May said, there have been, been numerous offers. Uh, there's been, you know, Palestine's been been given sort of its 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 own sort of limited autonomy. Um but and for years and years and years, right? Remember the 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 um, uh, big uh, big ask uh, of of the PLO and um, uh, the Arab states surrounding uh, Israel. Well, you know, will you re- will you recognize Israel's right to exist? That shouldn't be a big ask, right? Um, but it but it was for years and years and years. And the other big ask uh, for uh, for years of of this forever war has been well. Uh, listen, Palestinian authorities, Palestinian spokespeople, whoever your leaders are, will you um, commit to saying, you know, you you agree to some sort of peaceful uh, resolution, uh, but make those statements in uh, in Arabic? And, and they won't. Um, and I think May's right. This isn't this isn't a matter of uh, uh, this isn't Northern Ireland. Uh, this is a matter of one group uh, wants the other group exterminated. Uh, and it's been that way for for quite a while, and I don't know that there's any any way, um, you know. And and maybe maybe the the thing I'm, I'm wrong about is Palestinians. You could say, well, they've just had bad leadership, which which would be an understatement. Um, but absent, you know, if, if there's if there's some other Palestinian leadership out there, I mean, let's hear from them. Yeah, but but that, we never have. That to me is is the key thing because I agree with both of you that there there's no dealing with Hamas. They want a forever war. They're they're committed to the extinction of Israel. They would be happy with uh, another Holocaust, another genocide. I I believe that. But I also think that there's the possibility, at least. For some sort of alternative, I don't know how that works, and maybe this is incredibly naive, but I guess I'm looking for some sort of way out. And maybe if there's some sort of a deal that's made saying, listen, if we can get Hamas out and you have some sort of a non-terrorist government that is willing to at least uh, accept that Israel has a right to exist, well, then maybe we can talk about a significant aid package. I mean, when you have a situation where you have something like 40, 50 percent unemployment, you have no infrastructure, you have just nothing there, you're setting up a situation for just a whole bunch of disillusioned, angry young people who have nowhere to go and nothing to do. That that's a bad situation, and so we need to offer some. Sort you would of- say that's almost that's almost the type of situation that Hamas wants and thrives. Yeah, on. absolutely, absolutely. I, I and that's agree. and that's perhaps a reason. Yeah, for Hamas's as May pointed out, uh, the Palestinian authorities uh, 
failure to, to provide anything for its own people and siphon off uh, aid that it does get into into uh, into violence. I, I, and I agree with that. I, and I wonder if if are you so pessimistic and maybe you are. I'm not saying there's, there's reason to be so pessimistic about this, but. If you don't, if you do, you think that there is a possibility, both of you, do you think there's a possibility for some sort of leadership in uh, in the, the occupied territories that would be willing to at least be uh, committed to not destroying Israel so that uh, because without that, I think we all agree you can't move forward. But if you don't agree with that, then it seems like the only option for Israel is just to try to what destroy all the Palestinians. I mean, it's, I guess that's where I'm where I'm kind of struggling is: do we just say, well, this is just the forever war, and we might as well just uh, assume that the only thing Israel can do is just dis- just kill Palestinians until there just aren't enough left to be a real threat? I mean, that doesn't seem to be the the way to go either. So, uh, what do you think? Oh, I'll throw it to May first. <laughs> <laughs> So I think this is what we call only bad options um, because there are only bad options and, and what you, you know, recommended or not recommended, but like recommended could happen. is just no more Palestinians. That's obviously not even a, an available option. Um, I don't think it's ever been. Cons- I mean, if if Israel would have wanted or considered that it would have already happened. So that's off the table. And I just think is you know it's like almost radicalizing when people hear that and they're like oh how how bad it's it's just not an option so you know like you just you you have to get the arab world so if the palestinians all they want to do is kill jews i think this is why you need american leadership to try and negotiate a sort of agreement in the Arab world that Iran is worse. And if you can say that Iran is worse, then everyone else is on generally the side of Israel and generally is not going to blow up people who are on their side because they're all sort of uh, invested in countering um, Iran. And I, it's, I don't think it's, it's, possible actually for iran and pal and the palestinians or for israel and the palestinians to just themselves negotiate something that's going to work there has to be a common enemy there has to be a common purpose a little bit that mitigates murder um and i i have not found joe biden's leadership to be uh sufficient in that regard and in sort of maintaining any sort of middle east peace yeah yeah so so my like my my take on is is regardless of of what you might want eventually the first step is going to remain the same and that is you have to wipe out hamas and by wipe out meaning its leaders are all in prison and many of its followers are either in prison or dead uh Right. And, and in prison for the rest of their lives or or dead, dead, bombed out of existence. Um, that's that sounds harsh, but I, I think that's the only way. And, and then the, the problem, of course, is, is, as May points out, um, it's not just Hamas. If you want to have some sort of uh, organic Palestinian leadership uh, that's going to, to, to blossom up and, and negotiate peace, 
um, you you have to think about the Iranians uh, who are, are funding this uh, and the other groups that are have funded Hamas and, and pushed this instability um, for for decades. Um, it's also it's not coincidental. I don't think, and I don't think anyone said that it was that this attack happened just as Israeli and Saudi relations were improving, right? Um, and and it, it is tough to make peace with Israel if you look at uh, what has happened in the past of you know Egypt and, and Sadat, uh, and and um, I would say, look, I, I can't imagine any Palestinian leader coming forward uh, who says I want to you know have a a a legitimate, uh, uh, peaceful two-state solution with Israel, um, and recognize Israel's right to exist, and not have that person, you know, get assassinated. Um, I, I think that's that's the problem, right? And and that leads back to um, the Iranians. So I, I'm 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 with May on uh, on those points, and I think regardless, the first thing you have to do is is absolutely wipe out Hamas uh, off the face of the earth. Well, I think the one thing we're all agreed on is that Hamas needs to go. So maybe on that on that note of agreement, we can uh, uh, move on into our actually a domestic story, Jay. Right. And if you want to kind of take this one as well. Carthago de Lenda Est, Mike. Ooh, I like it. Yes. Carthage. You, must you, be yeah, you know what that means. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, Cato, Cato the Elder, I believe it was, right? ended all of his speeches. Yeah. Yes. And uh Apropos of nothing, right? But oh, yes. By the way, right, exactly. Yeah. Must be destroyed. Just throw that in there. So there we go. So yeah. Next, next, I will turn back to something uh, uh, more domestic and and something I, I I think I think we'll probably yeah I don't know some agreement some disagreement on this, um, but this uh, comes down them uh, again. If we're if I'm going to continue a holy land metaphor, uh, Moses sort of came down from the mountains out in Colorado, <laughs> uh, and the state uh, court in Colorado. Uh, held that Donald Trump can remain on the ballot, uh, but went out of its way to say he is is was an insurrectionist. Uh, but that uh, the language of the Fourteenth Amendment uh, that would prohibit officers of the United States who had participated in an insurrection from serving as president uh, did not apply to him because he was not an officer of the United States. Um, so my my take on this generally, it's a hundred some page uh, opinion. Um, is the, I think the court gets it right on the law, uh, on the 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 uh, Trump is not an officer. Uh, I do have uh, uh, quite a number of issues with the court's uh, one, even delving into the insurrectionist question, um, if it doesn't need to go there. Uh, and secondly, sort of, and this is going to be sort of inside baseball that that May and I would might get into, but um, how it got there, right, and the use of expert testimony and and so forth on on matters of law, which which I find a little troubling. Um, but I will, uh, yeah. Your thoughts, Mike? Well, I I think we the one part we will probably all agree. Well, let me, let me well, I should have done this because this is Mike. I'm so bad at the the intros. I suck at intros, right? <laughs> um. But just so we're all on the same page, I will read the uh, our section three of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, no person shall be a senator or representative of Congress or the or elector of president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or any other state, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or an officer of the United States, that's the big part, or as a member of state legislature, yada yada yada. Uh, to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. 
So that's that's the language we're talking about. Um, but go ahead. Well, the, the the part about it not applying to Donald Trump actually is the part I, I expect all three of us will agree with, because when I when I read the arguments and thought about it, uh, it seemed like a reasonable argument to me. I mean, why would they leave out the president and the vice president when they're naming offices kind of from the top down? And in fact, in an earlier version of the amendment, they explicitly named the office of the president and vice president, but that was removed from the version that passed. It just seems to me that everything in in the construction and the history suggests that this was not designed to apply to the president and the vice president. And I suppose if you take all that history away, you can say, well, is the president uh, uh, an officer of the United States? It's not 100% clear, but you add all that in, and it seems to me that the court reached the right conclusion on that. And not only that, I would add that even if it's somewhat in doubt, I would say that the court should rightly err on the side of not removing a choice from the people, which is what yeah. taking. Some- and, the, the, and the judge makes that clear. Yeah. And, and um, so, yeah, as, as part of the decision. But, but I guess the part that we might disagree on a little bit is whether or not Donald Trump is, in fact, what is, is an insurrectionist. And if I understand it correctly, and you guys can correct me here, but. They looked at it mainly in terms of whether or not he actually engaged in the insurrection as opposed to the aid and comfort part, because I believe that at one point in the decision, the judge pointed out that that wasn't an argument that the petitioners were making about the aid yeah. and comfort thing. Right. And to me, that that would always would have been the stronger argument. And this is where I, I sort of disagree with the opinion, because I think the argument that Donald Trump was engaged in insurrection is kind of weak. Actually, and, and maybe, Jay, you hinted at this, that they didn't even necessarily the court didn't even necessarily need to rule on that. Because If you say that it doesn't apply, then that it doesn't matter whether or not Donald Trump is or is not uh, an insurrectionist. At least that that's kind of my take. Um, May, May, what do you think? Yeah, the I, I don't know whether the judge was trying to make sure um, that they could still be invited to dinner parties and so point out they really don't like Donald Trump, but uh, the statute doesn't apply because obviously like 90% of the opinion is an advisory opinion. Um, but uh, I think that there are some problems with that advisory part. So one is not even just whether Trump engaged in an insurrection, but I would say that there was an insurrection to begin with. The court found, this is just quoting, that an insurrection at the time of the 14th Amendment was understood to refer to any public use of force or threat of force by a group of people to hinder or prevent the execution of law. I mean, that is wild. Do you know how many insurrections happen on a daily basis? Any use of of uh, force or threat of force by a group of people? I mean, BLM was an insurrection for months on end. Um you know, Palestinian protesters at the Democratic uh, headquarters. Yeah, the uh, well, Nashville guys, but- uh, transgender protest. I mean, like it's crazy that definition when they were meant when they were talking about the Civil War. What they were talking about was a civil war, and what the the judge has taken from that is any use of force. <laughs> it's like wh- what? So I think that the that that analysis was just completely broken. And then there was the second piece of whether Trump engaged in it. And the court said, oh, well, his speech, but his speech was engaging in the insurrection. Well, isn't speech protected by the First Amendment? 
Well, yeah, it is, but not if it's actually physically asking some someone to do something very specific that that person understands to be uh, a a direction. And I also thought that 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 was a stretch. I mean, here's a guy who's giving like an hour long speech over a bazillion things. He says uh, things in in multiple directions, and uh, you know, it's just that that the fact that it's not protected by the first amendment and that it was just like so clearly beyond um what anyone would consider to be protected speech is also i just think wrong so so there's a lot wrong but um i guess the one piece that was maybe right is not just the textual piece that the 14th amendment doesn't mention president or vice president. So we probably shouldn't just assume that that immense decision was made by them, like in a very atextual manner, but also it doesn't make a lot of sense, I guess, after the 14th amendment, if you're trying or after the civil war, you're constructing this rule where you don't want former Confederate agents to just mosey their way into the um you know officer positions in the government but if you're talking about a popularly elected president and vice president that's a lot different than just you know some random military officer is now in a random spot in like the department of defense this this is the american people coming and saying that we've made a decision and and, and so just that type of mini rule that wouldn't make a lot of sense, I think, in the context of of what people were considering. I, I, I want to, uh, since we're largely in agreement, uh, I think, on this, uh, I do want to point out one area where I, I probably will disagree with both of you a little bit more. You mentioned, May, that uh, the, the court's definition, right, any uh, public use of force or threat of force by a group of people to hinder or prevent the execution of law. And uh, to me, that doesn't seem all that broad and unreasonable, depending on how you define to, that that purpose to hinder or prevent the execution of law. And in my mind, there's a very clear distinction, or at least a clear enough distinction, between what happened on January 6th when those folks broke into the Capitol and members of Congress ran off in hiding, right? And there were people yelling, hang Mike Pence, that sort of thing, as opposed to uh, a street protest about it. Because the to me, I think you can make a case at least that there was a clear intent to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. That's very different than people taking the streets and saying, you know, we think the cops are wrong for doing this and that. And so I think there is that that is a reasonable definition. And you could argue that it would apply to January 6th and not to the bulk of the, the BLM protest or Palestinian protest. Even so, I still don't think Trump engaged in an insurrection himself. But I, I wanted to point out that distinction where I think maybe uh, I disagree with both of you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to jump in. And this this is um, I, 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 I suppose I, I get that where you're coming from, that this goes to um, you know, fundamental operation of government as opposed to just law breaking. Um, but but two things uh, that, that trouble me. One, and we've talked about this a, a lot before, is um, the the idea that uh, are they trying these these people? They may have been misguided. They may have been misinformed. Uh, but in their view, they believed that uh, their rights had been taken, uh, that uh, they were not 
trying to stop democracy, but rather defend it. Um, I, I think there ought to be some some grace given uh, in in that. And and you know, again, you can be you can be wrong uh, about something and not an insurrectionist. Um, and certainly, I can point to disruptions of various state assemblies uh, over the last couple of years uh, uh, by groups occupying state houses. It happened in Ohio. It happened in Wisconsin. Uh, there was the, uh, I believe, Virginia. Uh, uh, was it Virginia? I think it was Virginia, um, uh, where you, know, you had a couple state representatives who were uh, expelled and then, you know, promptly reelected uh, for for blocking business. Um, I, I think there's there ought to be some of that that you look at this as politics. Uh, now, that's not to say you can threaten to kill Congress people, right? Storm storm places and kill Congress people. Those are still crimes. Um, but I don't know that it's an insurrection, right? Well, I think well, it might be a different crime. Let, let me let me ask let me ask you this way. I, I think that's you know fair to make a distinction between people who were just sort of caught up in the crowds, like oh well the the Capitol's open, as, as opposed to people who came in there with a handful of zip ties and a plan looking yeah. for members of Congress. So I think you can say that those people, if their intent was to was to uh, whatever capture maim, kill, threaten members of sure. Congress. Were, were there, were, if the question is, were there insurrectionists among the people in January, yes. on January 6th? I would say yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but if, if the question is, was January 6th the, as a whole, was it an insurrection? I don't know. And did Trump participate in it? No, I find that very doubtful. The, the other line that I, I thought that's kind of funny, kind of sad um, from the court's opinion, in, and look, the court is the, the finder of fact in this, so it's it's within their purview to make this fact finding. But this is the quote: the, the court finds that Trump knew his supporters uh, understood his statements this way. This way meaning encouraging violence. Um, to me, that's sort of troubling. You've got this sort of double mind reading type thing of of well, this Trump knew that his people would know. Uh, that this is what he meant, uh, you know, one, this is what he meant. He knew what this meant and this is what his people. And it, it just seems far too attenuated uh, to me, um, particularly when when Trump also says, you know, things like we're going to do it peacefully, uh, et cetera. We're going to, you know, Mike Pence does the right thing, uh, meaning, you know, a, a peaceful parliamentary move. Now, again, it, it may be a dumb one. It may be um, uh, of, of no legal merit, um, but it's it's, you know. Again, I, I don't think that's by definition isn't an insurrection, right? Um, Mike Pence do the right thing. Um, yeah, uh, again, it's it's bad legal strategy, and um, yeah, I, I don't think it's constitutionally correct, but it's not an insurrection. And I I, I dislike this sort of the double mind reading piece um, that the court got into. I'm wondering, and maybe May, you can uh, address this one. Do you think that this decision is going to be the sort of thing we're going to see in some of the other venues in which this question has been raised? Or do you, do you expect that in, in any of these instances, maybe uh, a judge will rule that Donald Trump both was an insurrectionist or gave aid and comfort and therefore cannot uh, appear on the ballot? I would expect that if even if there was a ruling like that, it would end up getting appealed, and the in the end, the Supreme Court would would presumably not uh, abide by that. But what what are your thoughts on kind of broader implications? Um, yeah, well, the Supreme Court doesn't have to abide by a lower court decision, but um, uh, I would say that yes, you're going to find uh, courts who rule against uh, Trump's ability to appear on the ballot, and you might 
not even just find courts, you might find individuals. You might just have a secretary of state randomly decide that they don't want uh, Trump to appear on the ballot or even a more local uh, official cross out Trump's name. Local officials, we owe a duty to the Constitution. I'm going to cross out uh, Trump's right. name. You can't vote for him. So the um, availability for chaos and mischief here because um a few law professors think that it's a good idea to uh, recommend something so ridiculously anti-democratic as to eliminate the Republican frontrunner. I think uh, someone's going to do it. Someone's going to take the bait. Yeah, there, yeah, there's the 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 phrase that will be used is a, a court found Trump to be an insurrectionist, um, you know, and that's that's out there. And and again, I I think it's unfortunate because uh, the eventual end of the opinion, there was no reason the court, as a matter of law, had to go there. And typically, judges um, are are counseled, and it's wise to say if you don't, if there's an issue that you need to address, you ought not to address it. Um, but I, I would tend to uh, take May's view that uh, the, the court in this case probably felt they had to, um, uh, lest uh, lest they be accused of, of uh, giving aid and comfort to insurrectionists. Yeah. And just just as, as a reminder to everyone, those few law professors that May referenced are, hey, your, your people, May and Jay, Federalist Society guys who came up with this original argument. So I, I, I don't know, that's... Uh, that's kind of a weird thing, but I will I will predict that actually, no, there will not be a single uh, court ruling that Donald Trump cannot appear on the ballot. Now, as to whether some weird local official might do something, I'm not going to say that won't happen. But I do not think there will be a single instance in which a which a state or federal judge will say that Donald Trump cannot appear on the ballot because of the uh, Section three of the 14th Amendment. That's my bold prediction at this point. All right. And, and, and your a weird local official would not include a secretary of state. No, no, that would be a state. They may be, state they may be weird, yes. but they wouldn't yeah, necessarily no, they, be local. They would not yeah. be local. No. So we, we, we shall see about that. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to another court ruling. This one on something very different on the Voting Rights Act. And May, do you want to kick this one off for us? Yeah. So um, this is a case out of Arkansas, the Arkansas State Conference NAACP versus the Arkansas Board of Apportionment. And it deals with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which says that no state or political subdivision can enact any standard practice or procedure that denies or abridges the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color. What does that mean? Nobody really knew actually when it was first passed, they just thought it kind of was synonymous with all the other protections in the constitution. Eventually it started getting uh, some more legs um, but, uh, Congress wanted the courts to have a little bit more guidance. So they provided the courts approximately zero guidance by saying that, um, it's not just whether a state intends to discriminate on the basis of race when they, you know, redistrict or, or take another action. It's actually, uh, it's, you can look at discriminatory effects. Okay. But, but you're not allowed to have uh, proportional representation. So you've got 30% black population, uh, 20% Hispanic population, you get 30% uh, 
Black representatives, 20% Hispanic populations. Okay, so you can look at discriminatory effects, but it can't be, you know, necessarily proportional. Anyway, the Voting Rights Act, not a model of clarity. And um, and yet you've seen a lot of people bring a lot of private suits to try and uh, sue. This redistricting is racist. We just saw that in Allen versus Milligan that the Supreme Court has decided voter ID is racist. Uh, limits on mail-in voting is racist. I mean, just the, the list of things that you can accuse of being racist is is basically limitless at this point. And so one of the big questions was, is that a good thing? Are, are private plaintiffs, are individuals meant to bring those suits? Or is this a provision that's meant to be enforced by the Department of Justice, right? The Department of Justice oversees the states and says, you are doing something wrong. I'm going to sue you and I'm going to enforce the Voting Rights Act against you. And it was sort of assumed that private plaintiffs could bring this case. Uh, the Supreme Court has taken a lot of Voting Rights Act cases, has has also basically assumed, never said clearly that there's a uh, a private right of action. But, you know, there have been hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of cases. Uh, and And this is the first one to say no. Private plaintiffs cannot bring cases under the Voting Rights Act. It has to be the Department of Justice. So that's a sea change. Obviously, this will only affect the Eighth Circuit for now, and it will certainly get reviewed by the Supreme Court. And what the court basically said is, hey, we look at the text of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and it doesn't say that it can be uh, privately enforced. You know, our test has sort of evolved throughout the years about whether we assume statutes have a private right of enforcement or not, but the current test weighs against finding one here. Yeah, it looks like there's an individual right given, but uh, but if you look at the rest of the statute, other portions of the Voting Rights Act where it's meant to have private enforcement say so, and otherwise it very clearly gives authority to the attorney general. So it wasn't actually a very long opinion. It was somewhat straightforward on that end. It addressed, oh, you know, I I know that the Supreme Court has made various assumptions, but let's let's actually make them think about it. Let's actually ask the question because instead of assumptions, and so that's actually what's going to happen. So for the meantime, in the Eighth Circuit, there will not be very many private, uh, you know, petitioners bringing uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act claims. Let's not act like that uh, is the end of the world. These claims are not successful very often. So um, there's a the Voting Rights Initiative out of, I think, Michigan Law School has a piece section two challenges have been largely unsuccessful. So now private petitioners are not going to be able to bring largely unsuccessful claims. And the Department of Justice has a civil rights division that can bring these claims is it underfunded? Do they need more people? That's all questions for Congress. Um, but my sense is that this is a big decision, but it really is just an invitation to Cong or to uh, the Supreme Court to speak on it. And then after that, if Congress doesn't like that, or if they do, or if they want to give more money to DOJ, it's also an invitation to Congress. Um, so I don't know, Mike, are you... Are you upset about this one? <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, definitely. The world, def, def, Well, not the end of the world, certainly, but uh, uh, gutted the the gut of the voted right, right, right side. Well, yeah, in a lot of ways, as the as the dissenting as the dissenting judge in the Eighth Circuit pointed out, over the last forty years, there have been at least one hundred and eighty-two successful Section Two cases. Only fifteen of those were brought solely by the government. So I think this is a big deal. And so you know, there have been a number of successful Section Two cases. I I won't get into why I think that the Voting Rights Act needed to be worded in that kind of broad way, but that, that's, a, that's a separate issue because we're just looking at whether there's this right of private private action here. I, I think this is the Eighth Circuit just showing that, hey, it's not just liberals that can be judicial activists and, and, and jump the gun on things. This is judicial activism, I think, at its worst. There have been hundreds of these cases. The court has taken, the Supreme Court has accepted a bunch of these cases, and the Eighth Circuit just decided well, it's time for us to put our foot down. And, and I think that the uh, dissenting judge who said that basically until the court rules or Congress amends the statute, he'd follow precedent uh, and allow citizens to seek a judicial remedy. And I think that's the right way to go. And the two justices in the majority just were being uh, unconscionable, conservative judicial activists. And I'm not a big fan of judicial activism, whether it comes from the right or the left. So I think this was an absolutely horrible decision. Jay, what do you think? Wow. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I tend to think, um, look, I guess the, the question that I, I would ask, and, and I don't know this off the top of my head, and, and maybe May does, but I won't put her on the spot if she doesn't, um, is not so much how many, how many of these cases have been accepted or rejected, but how often has this even been argued? Um, right? It, 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 it may be that this has just not come up that often, uh, the, the private right of action piece. Uh, it may be that in most cases you have the Justice Department joining with the plaintiff or, or, or signing on or a state AG, um, and that sort of obviates the problem. Um, so I'm, I, you know, I don't see this as, as uh, terrible. I think uh, if, the judge, if the court's presented with this, this issue, they have to make a decision on it. Uh, and I don't think that's judicial activism uh, if that issue hasn't really been presented before. Um, I think it would be judicial activism if it had been presented uh, frequently and the courts, you know, now just said, now, well, we just changed our mind. Uh, that's something a little different. Um, but uh, no, let's let's uh, I, I sort of agree of let's tee this up and you may see some more uh, questions coming up in other circuits and it'll bubble up and uh, bounce around there and, um, uh, you know, maybe eventually land at the Supreme Court who will issue some clarity on this. Yeah, I guess on on the private right of action thing, I feel like if if there were no private right of action intended by Congress, they they could have uh, you you would have thought they would have given that there were been a bunch of you know private actions under Section Two that when they amended it in 1970, 1975, 1982, 1992, 2006, they would have done something put language in there to say, hey, there have been these private right of actions. We didn't intend that. That did not happen. And and the big concern, at least on the left, is that if you have an administration that maybe isn't terribly interested in section enforcing Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, if there isn't that private right of action, well, they just won't bring those cases. And then you have a situation where there may be a violation, but there's no 
remedy for people who believe that there is a violation. And that that's kind of a, I would say that's kind of a, isn't that kind of a fundamental legal principle that if there's a violation, there's no remedy, that's that's sort of problematic, right? I, I would think. Not, not necessarily, right? So especially when you have something, uh, you know, even political redistricting, right? So there, there are things that are supposed to not happen, but you don't want courts wading into them all that often because the court wading in is going to be messier than, than not. And I think that what you've seen with the Voting Rights Act, and I would say in Mississippi, but you could also take it with even simple voter ID cases is that it's not, it's not uh i don't know it's not very satisfying i guess to have a bunch of people launch uh charges that their state is racist um in general just to have the headlines generated i think you want a gating mechanism sometimes which is the department of justice um because it it does it's ba- it, it, there's a negative effect on our democracy i think when when you do have the headline when you do have people saying that that voter id is racist or uh this the fact that this block is in this district versus that district that's racist or the length you know all of that so you could see that the best way to actually improve our democracy to improve the way that districting happens to uh to improve trust to improve voter participation is actually not to have this and that doesn't that doesn't take away people's remedies that actually expands political remedies that that puts power more in the hands of the people and and stops i don't know this endless cycle of calling people hitler and and things like that 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 has i think been negative to participation um and 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 to the point of judicial activism <laughs> When you have two Supreme Court justices, one newly appointed, one longstanding, invite, ask in the Brnovich decision um, that no one here has briefed the private right of action uh, thing, but but I'm interested in it. I don't know how activist it is to say that somebody has got to tee this up. The Supreme Court has has signaled that they want to consider this question. There's no other way to consider the question than to consider the question and to present them to it to them. So I don't I don't know. I, I think that this they, they were sort of answering a call from a new and old member of the Supreme Court, which which is not a crazy thing to do. I guess on that point, they could have, my argument would be, they could have just as easily uh, concluded what the dissenting judge did, and that uh, that still could have teed it up, because the court could have decided to hear that on appeal just from the other side. And and on the, the issue that you raised about uh, leaving things to the, the democratic process, as a general rule, I, I think that's that's best, other things being equal. But when it comes to drawing of legislative districts, I think that's a special case because depending on how those districts are drawn, it can result in people not being able to use the democratic process to have their, uh, and, and if their, you know, if their votes are being uh, diluted, if they're, they're, I don't think any of us would agree, would disagree with that. We do not want to see voting qualifications or prerequisites that are designed to stop people from voting on account of their race or color. And so uh, especially in a time when 
both sides or a lot of people on both sides believe that the Department of Justice is is biased, whether it's the far right, right DOJ under Bill Barr and Donald Trump, or whether it's the far left DOJ under Merrick Garland and Joe Biden. If people don't have that trust in the Department of Justice to do the right thing, but they're also denied any sort of private right of action and feel that they have no influence over being able to choose their representatives because of what they believe are racially gerrymandered districts, well, that, that gives them no viable option. And I think that's a problem. So I, I would I would disagree with, with well, I make one point going back to what you said earlier about uh, Congress could have changed this all uh, in all these these various iterations when they made changes. Um, Congress could change this tomorrow, right? And it, and it, it, if, if you're correct, that it, it should be, I would think it should be sort of a no brainer if it wanted to. Um, but it won't. Um, second, uh, oh gosh, where was I going with second? Um, I should only try to think of like one thing at a time, <laughs> but, um, no, the, 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 the second problem is, um, in, in terms of, uh, saying, well, um, I, I, I think there's something inherently different and this is going to be a deeper philosophical disagreement uh, and going to the the whole point of the the voting rights act is as may pointed out the idea was uh it, it was instituted so that you could not use race as a proxy to prevent people from voting um what we have here now with this this argument of vote dilution uh is that it's it's not a matter of of you're not able to vote because of your race. It's because, well, maybe someone of your race might not be as electable uh, in one district as opposed to another. Um, and I think that's a totally different thing. Now that's, that's a question for another day and it's a, it's a bigger question. Um, but uh, uh, typically, and I, I think May's right on this and, and I know I'm more comfortable with it. The whole line drawing process has been a political question uh, with the exception of um, uh, you know, this voting rights, uh, racial district stuff. Um, and I think it, it is better settled as a political question. And it's, I think democracy is better served. Um, if we have districts that are not single race, uh, minority, especially in, in today's world, right? And I, I brought up the, the Ken Blackwell, um, example a number of times. And we could throw out Tim Scott and, and obviously Barack Obama. Um, and, and I, yeah, is this, is, I I I just don't know that this uh, idea of of vote dilution is is necessarily a, a workable or should be a workable theory. But again, that's a, a question for another day. So, but I think no, that's and I think that's a fair question. But I think it's like you said, separate from the question of well, who should be able to bring these suits? And uh, I I think reasonable. Oh no, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. This was purely about yeah. is there a private right of action? Yeah. yeah, and reasonable people I think can disagree as to how broadly section two of the voting rights act should be interpreted. But, but I think in general, I, well, maybe I'm not, I won't assume, but I would think all of us would probably agree that at least narrowly interpreted that section two of the voting rights act is probably a, a, a good thing. Uh, although maybe, I don't know. May oh, I, sure. Uh, may I, yeah, I, I would say, I would say no one here would, would disagree with the proposition that no one should be, barred uh or prevented or or hassled or impeded in any way from voting on the basis of their race and i just I think, think though that 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 prohibition is already present in our constitution and so th this the 
so then, you know, you had Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that made a bunch of... So just, the 15th Amendment, yeah. Exactly. You used to be a slave state, and so now we don't trust you forever moving forward, and you have to pre-clear everything you do through the Department of Justice. And at some point, you know, the U.S. government runs out of, of a reason for that, right? If you If you now no longer discriminate and we're going to treat you state differently... So just because you're Texas, you get treated differently than the state of Minnesota. You're not treating states on equal footing. And so that that type, that, that our, you know, our republic is not in favor of that. So you have to give a good reason. Couldn't do that. And so that the death of Section 5 basically has been the reason why there has been Section 2. But Section 2 has all and now we're not even talking about a private right of action has has just been so impossible to apply i think because of the reason that i mentioned which is you can't discriminate on the basis of race okay but now we're going to look at discriminatory effects okay but you can't consider proportional representation as the goal and so this whole enterprise in private rights of action to enforce something that is illegible um i think is is a difficult exercise. And maybe if you had a Department of Justice, and I think you could argue that it needs more people to enforce this, or they need to put out some sort of regulations or some sort of understanding so that states uh, know what to and what not to do, something like that. But that, to me, seems a preferable mechanism to resolving this inkblot of a statute then to have an explosion of lawsuits that actually is not necessarily there to generate different policy outcomes. But these are groups that are funded on outrage, right? Like they are there. These are groups that get donor money in order to make Republicans look like racists. And I do until they're blue. Yes. <laughs> the Aaron Holder program, I think. I, I really don't think that the private rights of actions have helped. like helped minorities uh the things that help minorities is you know just <laughs> like living in america being part of the american dream talking with your neighbors like being part of the melting pot that is the united states not having repeated lawsuits to say that voter id is racist but uh, that that's certainly a much a much broader question, and obviously not surprisingly, I, I fundamentally disagree on that. But I guess one more specific thing I'm wondering about. So you mentioned that uh, Section Two is is pretty broad, and certainly it is. And you also mentioned it well, Jay, and you mentioned this as well that hey, there's the Fifteenth Amendment, which which says basically the same thing, even more broadly, right, that the right of citizens uh, uh, sh shall not be denied or abridged by any state on account of race, color, previous condition of servitude. But it also says in Section 2, the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. And to me, that's why we have a Voting Rights Act, because you need some sort of meat put on those bones. And you can maybe argue that it should be a little clearer and more specific. I would argue the reverse is that it's broad simply because the thinking was that, well, states would be very inventive, uh, at least back then, in ways in which they could figure out to deny the right to vote using something as a proxy for race. And, and maybe you can make the argument that, well, that's not so much the case now as it was back then. And maybe that's true and maybe it's not. But I think there's Nothing. I think it's it's critical that we have a Voting Rights Act to act as that enforcement mechanism for that right guaranteed by the Fifteenth Amendment. 
so can I throw out like a completely, this is completely geeky. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, law question Go for, uh, for, for May and or for me, if, if does, could someone argue that the 15th amendment uh, in and of itself uh, uh, creates a private right of action? Um, much as uh, there's cases right now, there's a case going out the Supreme Court right now about whether the fifth amendment uh, via the 14th uh, creates a, a private right of action in takings, or do you have to have some sort of um, uh, statutory provision allowing that? Um, and, and my thought might be sort of the compromise between what, what Mike just said is, well, the 15th amendment creates that right and then leaves it to Congress to set up as to how it's enforced. Um, and I, I don't necessarily expect an answer. This is sort of just rhetorical, something to think about kind of question, but. So, you know, you've got section 1983, uh, which, um, is any constitutional violation. Yeah. It is a private right of action to enforce your, a, a deprivation of constitutional right. That is a private right of action. That's not something that the AG can bring. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't know if there's already been um you know anything specific on that uh, you know on that because if you can use the voting rights uh the separate provision the voting rights act the section 2 or previously the section 5 claims you know why would you do this right. But uh, there's no shortage of lawyers in this country. So uh, so presumably that'll be attempted and maybe we'll just be right back where we are. But I guess, um, you know, that's a purely purely academic meaningless question, but it's just something that occurred to me as we were talking. And it's some, yeah. it's something that the court is has actually addressed, not not regarding this, but in the last, I think in the last term, there was a case in which the majority of the court talked about that section 1983 private right of action. Just for folks who don't know, that basically is a, a law that says that people do have, uh, let's see, a right of action under if they are being deprived of any rights, privileges or immunity secured by the Constitution. Right. And so, um, uh, Jay, I I guess the answer to your question is that the 15th Amendment, while you could bring a 1983 claim, the reason people don't like it is because you have to show discriminatory intent yep. versus uh, in the Voting Rights Act. It's a yeah, it's much easier to do the Voting Rights Act claim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, again, I still think um, as. <laughs> Congress is perfectly um, empowered to act here. There are changes during the 1980s to try and add discriminatory inf- effects was an into- like a total failure because right. nobody knows what it means. That's how we ended up with the 1987 amendment language that creates the, um, yeah, there can't be a discriminatory effect, but you can't have any sort of uh, uh, quota type. Yeah. Proportional representation can't be the goal. Right. Yeah. So um, so maybe if they would want like to clarify that, which I don't know, you know, wh- what direction Congress would necessarily because there are some people who do want a quota goal. Um, yeah. And I think I think the 1987 compromise that, that put us in this this pickle is is sort of exactly what what Congress wanted. Right. It was it was obscure enough that both sides could declare victory. Yes. That's, that's about right. um, I have a friend 
who says that the, the Voting Rights Act Section 2 is unenforceable because it was meant to be unenforceable, it was meant to be illegible, and like that it it doesn't mean anything, and so therefore you can't enforce it. So that is a position that's been taken up by zero plaintiffs and zero defendants, and therefore zero courts, but um, I know one person who believes that. <laughs> All right. Well, on, on our trip into the weeds on this issue, which I I know I enjoyed and I hope uh, listeners did as well, that kind of brings us to an end for today. We still have a lot we want to get into, and we will get into that in our midweek show, which we will be recording in just a minute, a few minutes here, and which will drop as always, well, early midweek, I guess, Tuesday. And so we hope you will listen to that. But that is it for this episode. And if you're not already a supporter. What about our Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Mike? Yeah, we're already running kind of late, but let's let's do it. Let's do it. Just kind of a a, just one week our holiday things we're thankful for. How about that? So since we're already about a a buck ten or so, but but yeah, I do want to get to that among other things. And so again, this is a great time to become a supporter. I mentioned that if you become a supporter, you increase your level of support. We'll do. We'll make that donation to Feeding America. And so to find out more about all the support options, just go to Patreon.com slash politics guys or politicsguys.com slash support. We always put support links in the show notes as well. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really helps us out if you can subscribe, rate, review us on whatever podcast app you happen to be listening on, as well as sharing episodes on social media. If you want to get in touch with us for whatever reason, there's our Discord for supporters. There's always stuff going on on that channel, Facebook and X. There are links in the show notes, as well as good old-fashioned email where at mail at politicsguys.com. And finally, a very special thanks to our executive producers, brilliant Bruce Johnson, wonderful Wilmer Moreno, outstanding Andre Masker, dynamite Daniel Toe, righteous Ryan Beasley, and delightful Don Oglesby. Did I just do that? Yeah, I just did. Anyway, we'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.